Great news, my cruciferous cousins. Plant Strong Foods is hosting a March Madness Meals and Minutes sale. Visit plantstrong.com and save up to 30% on every one of our ready-to-eat chilies and stews. It is the perfect time to stock up on these heat-and-eat tasty meal solutions. Having a stash in your pantry means you're never more than 90 seconds away from a satisfying meal. The sale runs through March 17th while supplies last. Visit plantstrong.com today. All right, I got a little pop quiz for you. How many grams of fiber do you think there are in a four-ounce piece of grilled chicken breast? How about an eight-ounce grass-fed strip steak? How about two pasture-raised poached eggs? Or lastly, a glass of hormone-free organic dairy milk? Any guesses? You guys, you got it. There are zero grams of fiber in any of these foods. None, zilcho, the big goose egg. And sadly, most Americans eat an average of 16 grams of fiber per day, and the RDA is right around 35 at a minimum. And on the Plant Strong team, we easily eat 65 to 75 grams of fiber each and every day. And how, you might ask? It's simple. By crowding our plates with whole plant foods. I'm talking legumes, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, nuts and seeds that are absolutely loaded with all kinds of soluble and insoluble and viscous and non-viscous and fermentable and non-fermentable fibers. And to make it even easier, our Plant Strong products are brimming with fiber so you can trust that every delicious, convenient meal is giving you the strongest nutrition possible. Our pizza crust kits, for example, have 12 grams of fiber per serving. My Rips Big Bowl has 6 grams per serving. Our chilies and stews are loaded and all without any cholesterol or inflammation promoting animal protein. So if you want to get more fiber in your meals, just head on over to plantstrongfoods.com and stock your pantry with products that will help you reach not only your goals, but also your fiber goals. Thanks. There's a lot I don't know, but what I know for sure is that Every animal is an individual. Every animal wants her life or his life as much as I want mine. Every animal has a um, rich emotional life. You can't name an emotion that we possess that an animal doesn't. And finally, pain and suffering feel no differently to a chicken than they do to a child. I'm Rip Esselstyn, and welcome to the Plant Strong Podcast. The mission at Plant Strong is to further the advancement of all things within the plant-based movement. We advocate for the scientifically proven benefits of plant-based living and envision a world that universally understands, promotes, and prescribes plants as a solution to empowering your health, enhancing your performance, restoring the environment, and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your Plan Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. Hello, my Plan Strong family. 
I don't know about all of you, but I grew up in a house and an environment where we had lots of animals all the time. We had dogs, cats, we had pet pigs, fish, doves, ducks. We even at one point had a pet alligator, believe it or not. And I bring that up because I have always had a soft spot in my heart for for animals. I love, love animals. And I say that because I have a beautiful conversation for you today with one of the most compassionate, wonderful people that I have met in a long time. Her name is Kathy Stevens. She founded the Catskill Animal Sanctuary in 2001 with 80 acres of land that she turned from a virtual trash heap into an an idyllic sanctuary where rescued, abused, and forgotten animals can live their final lives filled with love, care, and the respect that they all so richly deserve. In her work and in her exquisitely written books, Kathy describes the essence and personalities of these animals. And in my conversation with Kathy today, she shares some of the most poignant stories from those souls that she has had the privilege of caring for throughout the years. In addition to her work as caretaker to these animals, Kathy and her team are also educators who believe that when they can show people the depth of these animals' personalities, it really can profoundly change people for the better. They take that mission to heart each day at the sanctuary. It is hard work, but also the flip side of that is it is so rewarding when they know that they can change the life of an animal and a human at the same time. Please enjoy these wonderful stories today from my very special guest, Kathy Stevens. Kathy, Rip. welcome to the Plant Strong Podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh man, this is this is going to be a delightful pleasure for me. Um, you know, you and your incredible Catskill Animal Sanctuary are just about a hop, skip, and a jump from the Esselstyn family farm in Claverack, New York. I know it. And now that we're talking, I need to make a point to go, go. Yeah, I've been such a fan of you, your work, your dad's work, your mom's books. I just ordered the new cookbook. Oh, yeah. So it's about time for me to get on up there. Oh, well, I can tell you right now, me and my family will be sledding on down to your place this summer when we're there for about two weeks. Fabulous. Yeah, I yeah, can't wait. Great. I can't wait. I can't wait to visit the, uh, the property and all the amazing things you have going on. But I want to start by talking a little bit about about you. Um, so you grew up uh, in Virginia on a on a on a farm, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yep, on a horse farm. On a horse farm, okay. and you had a sheep named Babette who wore diapers in your house. <laughs> yes, we did. Yes, we did. And a burrow named Linda. And a magical menagerie of animals. So, like, do you think that you were destined to have a animal sanctuary when you look back on it now? What, 21, 22 years after starting this crazy thing? Maybe, maybe. 
because I always, because of that, that childhood experience, I always had the awareness that animals are so much more than most people have the opportunity to know. Like we know that about our dogs and cats. People know that they have rich individual lives and that they are, are, have unique personalities, but we don't live in a world that wants us to know that about other animals. But because of my upbringing, I knew, I knew that. And so maybe, maybe it was destiny or it was certainly a way to bring together um, my love for animals and my, and that, and the good part of my childhood experiences um, with, with my passion for teaching and learning, having also been in my, in my twenties and early thirties, a high school English teacher. Now, did you have brothers and sisters growing up? I did. I did. I still do. We're all, I adore them. I have a sister who had the kids for all of us. She has four kids oh. and uh, love my nieces and nephew. And my brother is still in Virginia. He's the youngest. And do you feel like growing up in that, that household or that, I should say that, uh, that horse farm of yours, that you had this kind of like affinity uh, for the animals, did they also have that, or was that kind of unique to you? That big heart. It was more unique to me. Uh-huh. It it was my my brother. I would say had an affinity for the outdoors in general, but not necessarily for animals in particular. And my sister was like the quintessential sorority sister when you think of personality type like effervescent with a million friends and 29,000 things going on so she was more uh so so no not I was really the one who was most deeply connected by far to the animals well and you mentioned in uh in your book where the blind horse sings which I gotta tell you um I read it this morning <laughs> and, and, and by the end, I was just a ball of tears. Holy Toledo. Uh, mm-hmm. It was incredible. Um, mm-hmm. But you, you talk about how like you were the one you were drawn to the kind of like the, the oddball kids, you know, that I think that just speaks to the kind of the size of your heart and your, your empathetic nature, which, uh, which I really admire and love about you Um, and that's why I say, you know, I, it feels like, you know, you've been on this path. Like I, I've got three children and they're all so incredibly uniquely different and wonderful, but the youngest, as long as she's been on this planet has just had this, um, affection and affinity for all living creatures, Mm -hmm. um, and doesn't want to harm a toad, a frog, Mm -hmm. uh, a slug. She'll have slugs going all up and down her arms. She loves them. And it makes me think that maybe that's exactly how you were. <laughs> Kinda. Maybe without the slug. Kinda. Yeah. I don't know. I never encountered a slug when I was little. And, you know, I do wrestle with, because I do kill mosquitoes and and ticks. And every now and then I think, well, you know, is that okay? But, yeah, I was, I was, I've been that way my whole life. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, so you started the Catskill Animal Sanctuary in 2001. Will you mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about the background, about like 
how you acquired this 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 property, <laughs> yeah. and, and you and you got it from Charlie, this crazy smoke. Charlie Tiano <laughs> lit one, held one cigarette in his mouth to light the other one, just like that. Oh, he yeah. must have gone through four packs a day, Charlie Tiano. Yeah. So there were two brothers, the Tiano brothers, and the the one Frank Frank is still alive today. He's probably I think he's eighty seven and lives right at the top of our property. Oh. Well, um, <laughs> the two brothers couldn't have been more different. And and without, I, I adore the family. So I just, I don't want to say too much, but Charlie was a little bit of a wild man and and had some financial troubles. The, the, the farm had originally been a standard bread training farm, but it had run into trouble and there were all kinds of things going on on that property that shouldn't have been. And one day when Frank Sr. is gone, I will tell the whole story. But, okay. in, the me but in the meantime, like we, we found this property and it was to say that it was run down was is quite an understatement it had been used the 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 standard bed training operation had sort of folded some years earlier and charlie had allowed his friends to use it as a junkyard to put their dying vehicles and their refrigerators and their box springs and so we got it he was also a, several years back on taxes and was about to lose the property. Oh, wow. So we got it for a song and a dance, but man, was it in rough shape. There was a mountain of tires and there were 20, 20 some dead vehicles and a whole hill that he literally, he built the driveway on discarded refuse and just, um, when the pile got too big, he'd just throw kerosene on the hill and light everything. He was he was one of those people, good-hearted, absolutely good-hearted, but one of those people. And so we bought a farm in need of rescue. There was an open septic tank. Um, all the buildings had collapsed. So so and yet we could afford it because 80 acres at the time it was 80. We've since bought smaller contiguous pieces, but um, 80 acres in the Hudson Valley was way beyond our reach financially. So we, we bought this and just kind of brought it back one building, one fence, one road, one pond it's a, at a time as funds came in. Wow. It was an watch. adventure <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> I can't, uh, I can't imagine all the help that you must've had uh getting that thing off the ground I mean, it was a lot it was a lot in those in those days it was two decades ago when you could just eagerly welcome volunteers we had huge community groups volunteering and and we also had americorps the the government program that would send teams every summer to to stay in one of our houses and spend the entire summer. So it was, you know, we had just a at the time uh, a skeleton staff, just a handful of people, and most of us were volunteers. So that's how we did it, and we're still we're still doing it. It never ends, really. Yeah. And so has the mission 
from when you started this in 2001, has it changed? Has it evolved? Is it, is it pretty much the same? Well, it's interesting. I like that question. Um, I would say the mission hasn't changed, A, to rescue as many farmed animals as our capacity allows and to give them lifelong sanctuary, and B, to empower humanity on its journey to veganism. I wouldn't say it's changed, although although it might need a ref refresh, and we're starting to talk about that in, in our planning process, but it has certainly grown more urgent, urgent as, you know, we, the planet teeters on the brink of collapse. Yeah. Yeah. What are the um, different species of farmed animals that you support? <laughs> Horses, donkeys, cows, pigs, goats, sheep, ducks, chicken, turkeys, geese, pig. Did I say pigs? Pigs. I, I think. I, <laughs> I, if I name them twice, I should, because they are kind of larger than life. So. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> yeah. I want to talk about that. So um, you don't have an acronym for the 12. Is there no known acronym? For no, but what a great I idea. Think, I think, I think we should think of an acronym for that. Are there any values really though? In, that is a good idea. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, 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 good. And so, and so you said you acquired the initial property of 80 acres and now there's what? 110, if I'm not mistaken. 150. 150. 150. Now. Holy yeah. Toledo. Um, <laughs> so I want to ask you this question because in your, one of your books, you say that you always get this question from children and you're always like surprised, but then you're like, well, why would they know? So how do you get your animals? Oh, yeah. As many ways as you could possibly make up, like a lot of them come from, a lot of them come from industry. You know, uh, a factory farm is downsizing and it's going to gas a bunch of birds or crush or do whatever they do, grind them up. And so a sanctuary will intervene and collectively try to place as many as possible. Um, uh, we get a lot of because we're near Manhattan and there are close to 80 live markets in Brooklyn and Queens, we get a lot of escapees from live markets we take a huge number of animals from hoarding situations. And then there's what I call every now and then there's somebody who um, someone has passed away and their family can't, doesn't have the capacity or the desire or the means to take care of an animal. Um, but in terms of number, most come from industry, from um, hoarders. And then there's a handful that comes from what we call random acts of callousness. A pig, a pig left in a stall at a road stop, a chicken stuffed in a mailbox, a turkey tied to a tree in Central Park, those, that kind of category of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we, and then of course we work with police on cruelty cases. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So, um, so when you started Caskill Animal Sanctuary in 2001, I'm sure that you were just one of maybe a handful or two mm. handfuls. Mm. Now in 2021, there's probably hundreds. How are you guys, what separates you from the herd? Mm. Well, it's, you're right. Um, there was farm sanctuary back then, the the grandmother of all sanctuaries. I know you had Jean on. I listened to that that. Uh, conversation recently. Um, 
I think what I think what um, differentiates us are a few things. One is that we have this phenomenon that was originally small. It was really supposed to be a handful of animals, and it's gotten a little out of control. We have this phenomenon. How out of control? How out of control? Like 50. 50 is too many. We have this phenomenon called the underfoot family, and they are the ones who get to free roam all day long. So we open their stall doors at seven o'clock in the morning and they go wherever they want. And they are often underfoot, hence the name. Oh, my gosh. So literally, literally, when you do bring your family this summer, there's a very good chance that a goat will climb in your car. Yay. So. (laughs) So it's that, that is unique. And that um, allows people a sort of a disarmingly intimate and often hilarious experience. Yeah. Um, We are a community. I'm a former teacher and we are a community of educators dedicated to empowering people. Look, you know, we choose to believe as you do rip in people's inherent goodness and people's inherent kindness. And we choose to believe that once people do have that experience of having a cow lick them on their face or over and over, which is what happens at sanctuaries, or a turkey fall asleep in their lap, or a pig run to the fence when you call her name. When they have that, it changes them. Yeah, It changes them in a moment people are transformed. And so then it's our job to show them how. So we are a community of teachers, educators dedicated to doing that. Um, and then I think the, the third piece that makes us stand out perhaps from a lot of wonderful sanctuaries, you know, we each have our own stamp, is the depth of our programming. Mm. Um, from from my podcast, which is sort of dormant, but I hope to reactivate it in 2023, to a uh, vibrant cooking program, to schools, uh, programs with kids, et cetera. Those are some of the things. Well, speaking of a vibrant cooking program, you guys have this Compassionate Cuisine Cookbook that you guys put out. Uh, I think it was right before the... Um, the COVID-19. Right before the world changed. Yeah. It looks absolutely scrumptious, delicious. And, uh, and there's so many stories of all the different uh, farm animals. And speaking of the farm animals, you know, I, I really want to dive into, because I think the stories of these animals is so, it's so heartwarming. Um, and it, and it, it's, these stories just kind of bring it to life. So I'd like to start and then you just go on your merry way. So I'd like to start with, with Rambo because um, you say in here, you say in here, and I think it's related to Rambo, that it's the rare individual who frees himself from the past and lives the remainder of his life with purpose and com- um, compassion. And I think you felt that way about Rambo. <laughs> I did. And you have just made me cry. I did. Mm -hmm. Rambo was a Jacob sheep with a set of massive horns. They were probably 20 pounds a piece that moved back and then they curled around sort of in front of his face. And he was one of 17 who came from a hoarder. And they had been locked in a 12 by 12 stall for years 
And when we took them, the woman did not surrender them. So we, in, in situations like that, if, you're, if you've got to go through the, the legal motions um, before a surrender is, oh yeah, there he is. Uh, there, there those horns are. <laughs> Thanks for showing that. Uh-huh, uh-huh, you bet. <laughs> um, uh, when, you, when you are going through the legal channels, the, you, the animals don't belong to the sanctuary. They, are sti they still belong to the owner, so you can't neuter them. So you can't neuter them. So Rambo was an intact male, and we couldn't run the risk of him impregnating sheep. So Rambo was in a stall, and... Um, and because at the time, this was when we were just in our infancy and we didn't have 30 barns like we have now. We had one barn. So we didn't have a whole lot of options for this boy who we couldn't neuter. So we had him in a spacious stall. Um, we'd let him out periodically, but essentially he was living his life in a box. And he was pissed off about it. Why wouldn't he be? Because he'd come from confinement and here we were confining him. Sure. So he would back into the corner, back into the corner and like just come with those horns and that head at those, at the door. And eventually these big heavy two by sixes popped out from their brace and Rambo would walk out and go, go about his merry way. So we gave up on trying to keep him enclosed and realized that what he needed more than anything else and is what he'd never had. He needed freedom. Mm -hmm. So we put two beds of straw at the end of our, to both ends of our long barn for him. And he was the first animal and really the only animal to date who was free roaming 24 hours a day. We never put him in a stall after that. So theoretically, he could have been taken by coyotes, but we'd never seen coyotes come down from the woods. Mm. We'd never heard them. I lived right behind the barn at the time. So we felt like it was a safe risk that we were taking for him. Well, as soon as we did that, all that aggression went away. Yeah. One night, I came down to check on the animals and uh, we had never heard his voice. He only would call to us when he was in distress. So I walked from stall to stall. Rambo was on his far bed at the end, at the far end of the barn. And I walked down and looked inside 10 stalls, checked on most the mostly big animals. And Rip, I, and then I, and then I made the circle and came, came back. I didn't notice that the two turkeys we had at the time were not in that stall. Mm -hmm. It was sleeting and it was November and they could have been eaten by coyotes. So the humans messed up twice. First, the animal care team didn't must have had a miscommunication. A thought B was bringing them in or whatever. And then the backup, the backup screwed up. The backup didn't notice that the turkeys weren't in there. So I finished my circle and I went to the far end of the barn and I said, good night animals. Rambo got up from his bed. He walked very purposefully up to me and he looked up at me and he went, bah. <laughs> and I said, show me what's wrong. Because 
clear as day, clear as day. He walked most of the way down the aisle. He walked into that turkey stall, that empty turkey stall where those birds were supposed to be. And he turned around and looked at me. And I went to out and I got Chuck and Thomasina. One of them was blind and I brought them in, dried them off. And then I sort of crumpled (laughs) into a heap because that animal who had never known a moment's kindness until he came to us, knew the turkeys were out, knew the turkeys were out there, knew they weren't supposed to be, figured out a way to tell a human being, knew that human being would help, which made me understand that he got what we were all about. And the thing that changed me profoundly and forever was that he had empathy for Mm -hmm. two animals of a different species. Mm -hmm. And that moment changed my life. And that moment is literally why we now have 50 underfoots. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. And as as you said in the book, your core beliefs were built on a false set of assumptions and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and animals like Rambo have been your greatest teacher, haven't they? Oh, they absolutely have. Rambo and some others have been my greatest teachers. I never, ever realized, ha- remember a moment sitting in a class in whatever level of education thinking, oh, my God, what that guy just said made me realize that Everything I thought I knew about topic X was wrong, but so much of what I thought I knew about the differences between us and them, humans and non-human animals, was seen through my, the only way we can see, through our human-centric lens. And Rambo taught me so much, not only in that one night, but in many, 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 many other moments. He took on Rip, and I I wish I had consciously realized this while he was alive. I didn't. When did work. he, when did he, when did he die? 10 years ago. Wow. Okay. 10 years ago. Um, but he was our Hilda, right? He was Farm Sanctuary, had Hilda, we had Rambo, and he's just, I'll never... He's been the greatest influence of any living being on my entire life. Years of so what I what I wish I had known while he was alive was that he was simply doing what rams do in nature. What rams do is protect the flock, but he took on all of us mm-hmm. as his flock. Every chicken, every cow, every horse, every human. And there are many stories in the book of him coming to get me in my house when something was wrong. Yeah. And it sounds like uh, he was quite popular with the women, like Hannah and Barbie, both of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't believe you're bringing that up. <laughs> Hannah, Hannah, oh my God. Hannah <laughs> Rambo was our probably our only sexually harassed sheep. He, Hannah, who was another sheep, very shy drew her confidence from him, but she was so (laughs) obsessed. She was obsessed. She was very needy. And if Rambo was physically out of her sight, she would come to one, a human. And within, within a space of about a minute and a half, she would go from looking at you saying, where is he? To going, where is he? Where is he? To going, "Ah, where is he? 
And so we would literally have to take her and show her where Rambo was. He was often hiding from her because she was too much. And so we eventually found a compromise where they were just out for portions of the day together. And then he got some space, but, but in a chapter, uh, it's funny you brought this up. Nobody's ever asked me about this called the audacity of love. And I haven't looked at that book in years. I just remember, I remember this because it was so hilarious. A little industry hen, one of those giant, giant hens who become 15, 16, 17 pounds um, if they're allowed to live developed uh she she loved rambo she just loved him she yeah. just loved him and she would nap next to him she would climb on his back um to take naps and it was just absolutely too much for Han- hannah who was miffed at the humans when we wouldn't physically separate rambo and barbie the chicken and, and they, another another site that i can't get out of my mind is when you talk about how uh, Rambo basically came bounding uh, over this yeah. one, like on all fours, just kind of like jumping. And you're like, you didn't even know that was like something they did. You've seen it in when you were little sheep boinging, right? Sheep don't gallop. I mean, they can kind of canter along in that three legged, three strides, three gates, one, two, three. I don't know how to explain it, but they can <laughs> canter in the same way that, horses do and cows can but their fastest speed if they're if they're fleeing for their lives is a boing boing it's a spring boing 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 all four feet off the ground all four well i was going out to a conference and leaving very early and we had done a large rescue the previous day we don't take llamas but we temporarily housed three llamas until a local rescue were, was going to come pick them up the next day. Well, those llamas, we didn't realize how strong they were, had knocked the doors down and had gone a quarter of a mile down onto the neighbor's property. And I, I found them because they were, I, f- I found them and I thought, holy crap, how is how am I going to round up three Llamas who are terrified of humans um, in a giant, in a 25-acre pasture. So I went to get my dog, Murphy, because Murphy and I had developed this wonderful vocabulary and that started with, on this morning, I need your help. And I figured that he and I, he was intensely smart. We had a very rare kind of communication. And I figured that maybe with his help, I could get behind them and drive them um, back toward this little narrow lane that would (laughs) lead back to the barn. So we were sprinting across the top of a field, trying to get behind the the llamas to do that all the time. I'm thinking, what in the heck are we going to do out here? And I feel the ground. I feel the ground before at least my memory rip is that I felt the ground before I realized what was happening. And I turned around and here comes Rambo boing, boing, boing. What was going on in his mind was that sheep only run out of fear, 
They run when they're in distress. So he knew that something was wrong. And he, as the protector of the flock, was coming to see what he needed to do. So while I, the human, am standing there figuring out, you know, WTF, we're all going to do together to, to rally these, these yeah. llamas, Rambo and Murphy just started working together. Ram Murphy ran behind them and kind of nipped at their heels. And whenever one went in a direction he wasn't supposed to, Rambo put his head down. And I just walked along as that dog and that sheep herded three llamas back to the barn. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was, that was such a fun story. And, and you, you touched upon Murphy. And so I feel like, yeah, as you said, it sounds like you and Murphy had a kind of a, one of those really special relationships. Uh, I feel like I had one with a dog that I had named Tug. Um, is Murphy still alive or no? No. No. Okay. No. Okay. Okay. But it's, I mean, pretty incredible how he, it sounds like he had a quite a vocabulary and you could, he, you could say, let's take a shower. He go into the shower, right. Or the bathtub. And yeah. I, I've been amazed at animals' capacity to learn language, at animals beyond dogs, but dogs in particular. Yeah, if you, and if, yeah, and if you've seen the amazing video of the woman with the, the things, the, like, it looks like a checkerboard almost, but it's giant on the yeah. floor. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. I she, haven't. Ha she, it, each button is a word or a phrase and her dog and there are 50, 60 of them, her dog will go over to them and he'll press go outside now, mom, or time to play mom or mom, get the ball under the couch. It's <laughs> wow. It'll blow your mind. I'll try to, I'll find it and send it to you. So speaking of blowing our minds, will you, so talk to us for a sec about the cockfighting rooster, Polly. Uh, it sounds like that was another special relationship that you, you developed. Yes. Polly was uh, taken from a cockfighting ring. He lived at the, in the basement of a, a dog and cat shelter in Brooklyn um, called Bark. Uh, the Brooklyn Animal Rescue Coalition, I believe. And I met the director at, a, at an event in Prospect Park. We wound up taking this rooster who was um, kind of fake aggressive. It was just more for show than anything else. And Polly, he was with us for about three years. He came as an, as an adult. Um, but he learned his name. He ran to you when you called him. He ate lunch with us and begged for blueberries and started pecking at your shins if you didn't give him blueberries and loved car rides. Good Lord, he would chase my car around that sanctuary until I stopped and picked him up and put him in my lap. He and so the one time he bit you was <laughs> coming up the uh, <laughs> from New York City, right? Yeah. Swerve and he has his head hit something and yeah, and he, he fell into the passenger the footwell and he, he bit me and he swore at me. Yeah. He yeah. swore at me. Yeah. And, and he also wanted to sleep with you, right? 
Well, the, the first head. night, the first night I realized his capacity. Yeah. Like this was in the earlier days when we didn't have hundreds of animals, we had 50. And so you knew them so intimately, every single one of them. And one night, this was, again, this was before we had built our chicken barn. Our chicken barn now is heated um, during extreme weather. Uh, but we didn't have that. And he was in a stall and was in the main barn because that was all we had. And uh, I went down and he was shivering, 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 visibly shivering. So I got a crate, put it with, put, fill it with straw and uh, took it up to my house and got back into bed with Murphy. And instantly I, I left it in the dining room. Sorry. Left the crate in the dining room with water and a little bit of food and knew he'd be warm and cozy, thought he'd be warm and cozy. And uh, he, as soon as I, my head hit the pillow, I heard, <laughs> like they tell you what they want if you're paying attention. Uh -huh. So I went and got the crate, put it at the foot of the bed, got in bed. <laughs> and at that, by that time, you know, Murphy's probably sighing and I am definitely swearing. <laughs> so I thought, and it was so obvious. What he wanted. <laughs> obvious what he wanted. So I got a bunch of towels from the closet, old towels, and uh, put them on a pillow right next to me and put Polly there. And the next morning I woke up and there he was right there, hadn't moved an inch. And that was a bird, again, who'd been made to fight, mm -hmm. to defend himself, who was really just Love on two legs, just love just waiting to come out. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one of the things in reading the where the blind horse sings and all the different stories of all the different animals, and you say is that the healing process is different for each animal, right? The, the time that it takes sometimes. And like, for example, obviously, you know, if you could talk about Buddy, um, the blind horse, because th that was, you know, that, um, very, very powerful. Um, maybe starting with him trying to get out, uh, of the, uh, what's a trailer that he was in and just shivering uncontrollably mm. and couldn't get him to move like even an inch. Mm. He, we were contacted by another, uh, by an equine rescue that didn't have the capacity to take him, a place called Equine Advocates. And Susan, the founder, said, you know, I, I've met him and I think he just needs a chance. The, the family didn't understand how to care for a newly blind horse. And he's an Appaloosa. And for reasons that science doesn't quite understand, Appaloosas are eight times more prone to this particular form of blindness than other breeds are. So of the, by now, 10 or 11 blind horses we've taken in, and by the way, Rip, we've taken in so many blind animals, cows, ducks, sheep, um, he, most of them have been Appaloosas. So Buddy arrived shivering violently right violently just i've ne never seen a horse shiver like that way beyond what how you'd shiver if you were cold and didn't want to leave the trailer and and 
was literally moving just an inch, just a baby step at a time. And I had to take a bowl of food. You know, lots of it was just touching him and talking to him and letting him hear my voice and reassuring him. But then eventually we had to get in the barn. So I took some some sweet feed, which is, you know, basically chocolate cake for 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 horses, for animals, because it has a lot of sugar in it. It's not the healthiest. You use it for very, very, lim- very limited reasons. Your family would not approve of sweet right. feet. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, just sat backwards, scooted backwards on my butt while I was pu- pulling him, you know, encouraging him with the food. And eventually we got to the barn and then I had to s- tap to help him understand that there was a step to get up into the barn. So that was the first day. Well, over the next few days, I'd take him for long walks, short walks and then long walks, just helping him acclimate. And very soon, Buddy wanted to trot. And very soon after that, he wanted to gallop. Well, I'm sorry, I can move a little bit, but I'm not a horse. I can't run as fast or as long as a horse. Sorry, wish I could. So I thought to myself, do I need to ride this horse? Mm-hmm. I had grown up, grown up as a competitive rider and we don't in general support riding because with it, because you're commodifying the animal with, with it. If it's competitive riding, you're using the animal for your benefit. We feel differently about companion riding, getting on a horse and riding through the woods, for example, because we believe it benefits both the human and and the horse. But I had no intention of riding Buddy at all. But he Rip, he wanted to run. He wanted to run. He wanted to run. So it's like, okay, I guess I am going to ride this animal. And we started off... um, we the the area behind the barn was extremely hilly and it had a creek running through it so the first days i recall were just teaching him words up down stop water mm-hmm. uh things to keep him safe things to give him the confidence that when uh, about when he had to change his gait to keep himself from falling but then within days i was riding that animal and then on a day that I will, that's etched into my memory forever. We went out into a huge neighboring field, huge, 50, 75, 100 acre, giant field. And he, his head was up and his ears were up and he was excited and he started to trot. And then he started to canter and then he started to gallop. And then he was running as fast as he possibly could fast as he possibly could what's going through your mind oh i I, no conscious thought just utter utter joy utter joy utter joy and being one with that animal and and uh he ran until he was done probably three or four minutes because he was not long because he was running at top speed And then he gradually slowed down and stopped and he lifted up his head and he let let out the most exquisite neigh, the most 
joyous, exuberant nay I've ever heard. And I felt like he was saying, I'm free. And it was a moment I'll never forget. And, and we rode him until not long before he passed away because he insisted on it. It was the only way to give him what he wanted when what he wanted was to run. What, what, that's what they lose when they lose their vision. Mm. Right, they lose the capacity to run because they don't know if they're going to run into something. Yeah, yeah, that must be so absolutely frightening. But obviously, he he trusted you implicitly, and uh, and you gave him that that uh, that gift. Um, and 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 so that time when he let out that that wonderful nay is that how you got the cover of this book and the uh, name for the book? Yes. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It is. <laughs> that's such a that's such a great photo and such a great title for a book. Brilliant. Thanks. Uh, um, let me ask you. Uh, we we could tell these stories about individual um, animals for a long, long time, and I'm not done. But I want to take a little, <laughs> little pivot. So you you say how? Uh, talk to me a little bit about goats and what have you learned about goats? Because you say how they're fun and curious and optimistic creatures and who even knew that goats, you know, had, I don't know, different personalities and emotions. You do, obviously. Yeah. So here, here's the thing. Let me, let me say one thing first and yeah. then I'll, and I'll talk specifically about goats if that's okay. What we've learned unequivocally, like Oprah says, what I know for sure. Well, what I know for sure, there's a lot I don't know, but what I know for sure is that every animal is an individual. Every animal wants her life or his life as much as I want mine. Every animal has a um, rich emotional life. You can't name an emotion that we possess that an animal doesn't. And finally, pain and suffering feel no differently to a chicken than they do to a child. Having said all that, there are particularly the, the thing about the individuality of each one, each one. There are universal things that apply, characteristics that apply to, to all humans, for example, and of course, consequently to all other species. So goats are the frat boys in the barn. They are the troublemakers. They are the social ones. They are the in trouble, jumping on people's cars, breaking into the kitchen. You know, th that's who they are. That's who they are. Playful, never grow up. Uh, they're kind of perpetually in their terrible twos. And will they, and do they really, will they eat anything like you've heard, like a tin can or whatever? I mean, I don't, think they'll eat a tin can but they will eat almost anything else latex gloves we just yeah you have to be really careful when you've got free roaming goats because they do eat things they really shouldn't um but they also eat things like poison ivy and dead leaves and so it's kind of a mixed bag but you just got you got to keep them safe because they will eat all kinds of things that they shouldn't yeah yeah. You know, one of the things that really, there's so many places where my heart just was bursting for joy. Uh, but one in particular was when um, uh, Buddy was walking through and Dino, who was Dino, Dino, sorry, Dino, who was, okay. 
the pony who survived that horrific fire and 20 of his family basically perished. And you say he was standing out in that field, just like, you know, just a mess. Right. And didn't know if he'd ever recover, but something about when he saw buddy, they immediately connected. Right. They, they had, but D Dino was so emotionally shut down. Like I, I, what we've learned about animals, I'm sure that human psychologists would say the same thing about people that if you've come from trauma, you can immediately embrace love or you can, or you can fight, fight. You can come out, you can, you have a fear-based response to your new environment, or you can be just absolutely shut down. And Dino was absolutely shut down. He was the only survivor of a Brooklyn arson that killed 22, I think 22 other horses. He probably survived. You're, oh, you would know this. You would know this, Rip. He was the only survivor. 22 horses died. The rest of them were horses. He was a tiny, tiny, tiny. He was probably low below the smoke. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Yeah. Because just smoke inhalation is typically what uh, what causes people or animals to die in fires. If you can stay low and uh, avoid the smoke, you're great. But just two big gulps of smoke and you're, you're passed out. Gone. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's, I've always wondered, oh, I'm glad we're talking about this. I've always wondered if it's because he was the tiny one that was the reason it he probably, survived. It probably helped. Sure. Well, there's a, I'm going to see if I can find, because you'll love this. I don't know if I can find it. I'll try. Um, there was a, an amazing photo of a firefighter taking off his oxygen and giving it to little Dino after, after they dragged him out of this inferno. And he had horrible, um, scar tissue in his throat and one of his eyes had sort of kind of half, it looked like it had sort of melted. I, that's the only way to describe it. It hadn't melted, but, mm. um, but that little animal was so shut down and we had trot for months and months. He just, he would eat, but not enthusiastically. He would never lift his head when we walked in. He would sort of tolerate our touch, but not welcome it at all until Buddy came. And there was something about, I don't know what it was. I don't know. I still don't know. Well, I think but they loved each other. Oh my goodness. <laughs> That's you you say that that in the human pig relationship, humans have to adjust to pigs. Oh. Period. Oh. Talk to me and talk to the audience, the listener, about pigs. I can't believe you're just wanting me to tell stories all the time, which of course is my favorite thing to do. <laughs> so thank you. Sorry. Oh, um, There's nothing I like more. <laughs> so so pigs. Pigs. Well, God, they are a force of nature, which is one of the reasons why pig factory farms are built the way they are. Not only is it is it, you know, they want to crowd as many as they can into as small a space as possible because it's economically that's the most economically viable way for the 
corporation to make the most money, but also because a pig can hurt you. If they're smart, they are willful, they want what they want when you when they want it, and what they always want is food, and they can drag you around as if you are way about as much as a blade of grass. So that combination put on a sanctuary as opposed to a, a factory farm where they're locked in crates barely bigger than their bodies uh, gives you a run for your money. It gives you a run for your money. And like they're they're fierce. They're affectionate, but they are all those things, drama queens, strong and food obsessed. And so that that makes for challenging situation when the worst thing they're going to get at a sanctuary is bad pig, bad pig. We're not going to electrocute them. Yeah. We're not going to beat them with a two by four. We're not going to confine them. So you've got to know your way around pigs or you can get hurt. Do pigs like kisses? Yes. Yes. Yes, they do. Right on the snout. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend, I've yet to have anybody take me up on it, but I regularly kiss the pigs. Well, you actually say that um, in that chapter on pigs, or I should say that section on pigs, you say that uh, the lessons, you say that, you know, they can outsmart us. You say that they're, they can also be drama queens. <laughs> God, temper tantrums, temper tantrums. <laughs> they, they can, the pigs cry. Like it, it, like, like. Give me an example. Like, well, uh, the example, the best example is when I walked into the barn one day and I heard, <laughs> I heard, <laughs> and I literally looked around for a woman who was crying, and I didn't see anybody. And then I realized it was coming from a stall. And I went in and there was nobody visible because Petunia the pig had buried herself in a giant pile of straw and was crying. So I lay down, I lay down behind her and draped my arms over her belly and she went in the same way that I'm sure you've experienced with your children. She, she just went, <sighs> <laughs> and I went out and I found out that what had happened was that her BFF at the time was a goat and a goat had nailed her in the butt and it had hurt her feelings because they are so unbelievably sensitive. Mm. She mm. couldn't take it. That's all it was, that it hurt her feelings. Yeah. We've had, we, when I was growing up, we had four different pigs as pets and two or two of them were great. And two of them got to be kind of mean. Testy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you, we've, we, they can, they really run the gamut. They, they, for the most part, our pigs have been absolutely lovely, but we've had a cup and, and just, you know, lie on top of them and all those wonderful things. But we've had a couple who, couple biters. We have one now who's a biter. She's a biter. Got to be careful. Uh, you say that mealtime is magic. So like, talk to me about, what is mealtime? What does mealtime look like uh, at Catskill Animal Sanctuary? It's well, it's just such a cacophony, <laughs> right? Everybody knows. So all the underfoots come in because they might as well have have clocks because they come. They know. They know when 
dinner time is, whether it's that they see the hay coming down out of the hayloft or they just know by the position of the sun or some other way. They know and they come in from wherever they are. So there's this long parade of goats and sheep and Russell the pig um, coming in and hovering, hovering around the kitchen. And then then there, then the cacophony starts, right? With the goats bleeding and the sheep's sheep bleeding and, and the the horses <laughs> and the cows out in the fields mooing. But is it is the pigs who are deafening. The pigs climb their fences, use their front legs and climb on their gates and they start to scream. And I'm not going to do it because it will literally hurt your ears. But they scream like amplified by 5,000. Like, Give me my food now. So it's just it's utter joyous insanity. <laughs> Uh, now, uh, so give me an idea. How many animals roughly do you have right now on the property? I, I can tell, I haven't done the math, but I can tell you roughly how many we have of each species. We have roughly 20 horses. We have roughly 20 cows. We have roughly 2 million goats. No, we have like 50 goats, 50 or 60 sheep, um, 15 pigs, and then probably all told about 100 birds. Right. And so I can't even imagine um, the expense that's involved in caretaking and feeding and housing and doing everything you have to do uh, to take care of everyone. Just give me an idea, like in today's climate, how is it challenging for you and what can we do to help? Well, it has become a real challenge for a whole host of reasons. And it's interesting that you're bringing up the term climate because that can mean a few things. But um, in this climate, you've got a the rapid growth of of the sanctuary movement, which is great for collaboration, for partnerships, for placing animals when you don't have the physical room, for idea gathering, for support. That's the good stuff. And it's mostly good. But the downside is that the support of sanctuaries is not keeping pace with the rise in growth. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, one is that for the most part, humanity, we love our dogs and cats. Right. We love our dogs and cats. We support wildlife, Sierra, Sierra Club and organizations like that. For the most part, we're lagging way behind in our perception of farmed animals as deserving of their lives and consequently of care. So that's one thing. Another thing is that there is this movement called effective altruism that is truly harming sanctuaries. I'm one of a number of um, authors and activists who are contributing to a book that's coming out this spring. Uh, it's a compilation of critical critical essays on this phenomenon known as effective altruism, which has great which which argues passionately against sanctuaries, saying that the model is too costly. So that's sort of out there in the zeitgeist, and the consequence has been that some of the biggest donors ever to be a, 
part of this movement have pulled away from sanctuaries and are supporting largely clean meat initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and then on top of that, you've got inflation. And when, so when you, when we have, when we use 10,000 bales, just to take one specific example, 10,000 bales of hay a year, and hay goes from 650 a bale to 1050 a bale. That's 40,000. That's real money. Mm-hmm. That's real money. So those are some of the challenges that, that sanctuaries around the country are confronting. And then we, you said the word climate, so I, it got my attention. We are in a valley. And we have the very real challenges of climate change in a valley. Uh, our, our little stream and pond become a river in these weird, during these weird storms that we're having. We lost in a microburst last year, we lost 22 trees in a single microburst. We lost a bunch of trees in that odd, that I don't know if your family told you about this, that very odd, uh, ice storm that I think was in yeah. April and we had damages to buildings, damages to vehicles and insurance called it an act of God and didn't cover it. Mm-hmm. So those um, are some of the challenges that we face and that plenty of other sanctuaries face. And I think, you know, just exposure on your platform is a huge thing, you know, just to encouraging people to come visit and fall in love. We, 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 more animal lovers need to visit sanctuaries and, and see for themselves that there's no difference between the dog that sleeps on the end of their bed and, and a cow or a, or a duck mm-hmm. or a pig. Mm-hmm. Um You've been doing this work now for 22 plus years. Uh, what would you say you are proudest of? I think our sort of um, gentle insistence on love as our kind of modus operandi and not giving in to the anger, the rage, the impatience that so much has been historically so much a part of this movement. And I think influencing others like sanctuaries from around the world have sent ambassadors, staff people uh, to learn from our model. So I'm proud of that. Um, I'm proud of this team's resilience, mother of God. <laughs> um, I'm proud of this team's resilience. Um, and I, I don't know if it's proud or, or privileged, like lucky to have participated in this work in this movement for long enough to see its evolution. That's so exciting to me. Well, you know what? And let me piggyback on that. And this is something uh, that was in your book. And it's a quote from Walt. Is Walt still with? <laughs> no, Walt's okay. hilarious. Okay. But he says, this place makes my heart sing. These animals are gifts from God, like getting a thank you note from heaven that says you're doing the right thing. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. How, tell me this. So how do you typically say hello and welcome a, an animal? to the the farm sanctuary mm. i've never been asked that question it's good 
um, we, you just, in the way that people know their children or their dogs or their cats, you, you just learn to read animals in an instant, whether it's watching for verbal, watching for physical cues or, or feeling their energy or both. And so it's all, it's all individualized. Some animals, as I, as I said earlier, but I'll, I'll refine this. Most animals come and they are either fearful or they are, you know, neglected, but okay, perfectly comfortable with humans. And so the perfectly comfortable with humans just get the good quality support. They get the affection, but they get all the quarantine protocols. They get all the medical treatments and et cetera. So that's the easy group. The more challenging ones are the fearful ones. Um, with those animals, our, our phrase is let each one heal in his own way, yeah. at his own pace, on his own terms. You have to do that. So sometimes that means giving that animal a lot of space, a lot of space, and let it always, always, always letting the animal come to you. Sometimes it means getting physically small, even if it's with a horse or a cow, the sitting down on the ground and letting them come to you. Sometimes it means physically turning your back because eye contact is too scary. So um, it's... Well, and the, and, <laughs> and and on p page one eighty three in um, where the blind horse sings, you and I'm gonna um, you say it's been fifteen days since our last arrival. A little hen found on an exit ramp off the New York State Thruway, but I've long committed to memory the words I whisper to each new arrival the moment we meet. Hello, animals! I say to the foursome as I kneel in front of them. We're so happy you're here. And you know what? You will never, ever be unhappy again. Only love from now on for the rest of your lives. When I'm reincarnated, I want to be an animal. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Rip. And I Thanks. want those words to be whispered to me. Now, I'm going to, on that, I want to ask you this How in the world do you say goodbye to these animals that you? Are, have become so attached to and love, and and I and maybe you want to do it around the example of Samson, who was in you know that twenty five hundred pound steer. Yeah, I think if you are going to succeed in this work, and if you're going to be in it for the long haul, you have to get good at saying goodbye. Mm -hmm. You have to, and so we learn you love with your whole heart. And when it's time to go, you, I've known, I've had too many friends, I'm sure we all have, who've, you know, assuming they have the means, people who have done every last thing to keep an animal alive. Those people are doing that for themselves. They're not doing it for that animal. 
No animal wants to be poked and prodded and surgically opened up and sutured up again and, and be drugged. And like you learn to know when quality of life has diminished to the point that it's just, it's just time. And very often they tell you, they, they, they'll say, I'm, I'm done. They'll say it. They'll say it. They'll stop eating. They'll, their, their affect will be very depressed. Um, in the case of Samson, who was another one of those extraordinary mm -hmm. animals, um, we, something, I, I, it's, to this day, I don't know what happened to him. He just, I don't know if one of the younger steers attacked him, but he just was down down in the field one day and he never stood up and um it was very apparent that after all our efforts that it was time to let this let this old guy go and so we gathered our crew the people who knew and loved him best and we surrounded him with love and we um we, a lot of people, we were sort of singing to him and, and loving on him as he was falling asleep. And it, most, most of your listeners have probably been through a euthanasia with one of their companion animals. It's a two-step process. And the first step, the first injection, the animal just gets very sleepy. Well, that sweet old boy licked my face over and over and over and over again until he took his last breath and then just fell. So we've learned that it, those, those moments can't be about us. Like there's no falling apart during a euthanasia. You have, if, if you cannot be there for the animal, then you should stand back because all of our energy and all of our love needs to go towards sending that animal off in a way that he or she deserves. Mm -hmm. And we've had some powerful final moments. I can't yeah. even imagine. <laughs> it's a gift though, Rip, like to be able to do that for somebody. It, it's hard. It's hard as hell, but it's a gift. The harder ones are when you find an animal who's just gone. And that's that's harder because you haven't had a chance to say goodbye and to process. Mm -hmm. um, so where where can we find you? How can we help donate all these other wonderful things? Oh, my goodness. Well, talk. we we everything, you know, our website is the hub. So you can access Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all our social media through our website, which is casanctuary.org. We are open for private tours year round. So people can get on the website and register for a private tour and come anytime. Um, we will open up, up again for public tours in, uh, we, in April. We've got a gorgeous old 200-year-old bed and breakfast where people can stay. Mm -hmm. And we welcome RIP. If people for if people listening who are regional, we certainly welcome volunteers, um, obviously welcome donations, any, any way that people would like to get involved. Okay. I'd love to explore opportunities with you guys. Just, say, <laughs> just saying. 
Yeah. Um, I, I, I tonight cannot wait to start reading a chapter a night to my eight-year-old. Her name's Hope of where the blind horse sings. It's going to be so impactful. And um, I just, I, I want to share that, uh, that book and all those stories of all those animals and the wonderful work that you're doing with her. Well, I really hope she enjoys it. And I really hope you will come this summer when you're up our way. Oh, I, I promise you right now, we'll be there. Okay. Uh, okay. I, I want to close, Kathy, with the dedication from animal camp right okay. and this is your dedication because i think it's so beautiful and it's a it's a great way to to end this this great conversation we're having today i believe that in all of us is a good and pure knowing that beneath the surface of things beneath gender and skin color religion and nationality social class and sexual preference and yes beneath species we are all the same this book is dedicated with love and hope to that good and pure knowing in you. Oh, it's so wonderful. <laughs> but isn't it the truth? Yeah. It's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for closing with that. Yes. Um, Kathy, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. <laughs> I love your energy in the world and all the good that you and your family are doing. Thank you for this beautiful opportunity, Rip. Can't wait to meet you in person. Yeah. Right back at you. <laughs> okay. Ciao. <laughs> Every animal has a rich emotional life and they want to live. Like humans, they have pain and fear, but they can also learn to trust with the right interactions. Thank goodness for human beings like Kathy Stevens and places like Catskill Animal Sanctuary who bring love and care to animals while also making the world a better place for all of us. Visit their website at casanctuary.org to support their programs, to donate, and to buy any of Kathy's books, including my absolute favorite, Where the Blind Horse Sings. <laughs> you will love it. And if you find yourself in that area of the country, by all means, pay them a visit and say hello to the animals for me. Spread the love, the compassion, and always keep it plant strong. Thank you for listening to the Plant Strong Podcast. You can support the show by taking a quick minute to follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Leaving us a positive review and sharing the show with your network is another great way to help us reach as many people as possible with the exciting news about plants. Thank you in advance for your support. It means everything. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.